book of Hebrews, chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Great God, we bow before you. We ask that you would teach us your truth, show us who Jesus is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And give us ears to hear all that you would say to us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. As we engage this amazing passage in the book of Hebrews, it's good to remind ourselves of where it is we find ourselves. The writer of Hebrews is in the middle of quoting seven passages of Scripture from the Old Testament, all of which show the superiority of Christ. His audience were obviously very familiar with the Old Testament. He didn't need to stop and explain. He understood that they would understand all he was setting forth. When he was quoting verses from the Old Testament, as we call it, they would know those verses inside out, and they would also understand the context. When he quotes, for example, the book of Psalms, this was the songbook of the Hebrews. This was the nation's songbook. And so when he quoted a certain verse, they would know the rest of the psalm, oftentimes by heart. So every text he cites is very powerful, a powerful testimony to who Jesus is. And we're in the midst of seven of these, one after another, just Bum, 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 text from the Old Testament showing the superiority of Christ to angels. Last time we ended by dealing with verses 8 and 9, which was stunning testimony to the deity of Christ. Two distinct persons are addressed. If you look back at the text, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, there's the king, which relates back to Psalm 45, who rules with a scepter of righteousness and who is anointed and is called God. And there's a second person. It is God who anoints the king. And no matter which way we cut it, how we try to dance around it, two persons are each addressed as God. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is divine. He is God himself. 
Several things come out of this particular section, verses 8 and 9. He's addressed as God. He's a king and has a kingdom. By the way, there's no kingdom without a king. And when there's a king, there is a kingdom. Kingdom is really two English words sandwiched together. The domain of the king, the king's domain, kingdom. And so this king has a domain. He rules in a kingdom. He's committed to righteousness and by that he hates lawlessness. We made the point last time. If you love something, you'll hate that which opposes it. If you love children, you'll hate that which opposes children and you'll certainly hate abortion. Because of this, therefore, God anoints him as Messiah. Because of what? Because of his love for righteousness and his hatred of lawlessness. Therefore, on that basis, God anoints him as Messiah and he has companions, he has fellows who are also anointed, something I didn't bring out last time. But the fact is these fellows, these companions, and there's various speculative ideas as to who these people are. I tend to think it's the people of God. It's the children of God, as is made clear later on in Hebrews, not too far from here in the second chapter and beyond. But these companions, these uh, fellows are also anointed, but not to the same degree. You'll notice uh, the, the wording here. Jesus is anointed above his companions. It's not that they have no anointing, but Jesus is anointed with much more anointing. As we come now to verses 10 through 12, we're encountering the sixth of these seven Old Testament passages. Notice the start of verse 10. It is the word and. That's significant. It's not always significant. It's significant here because it's reminding us of the fact that the person being addressed is the Son. Going back to verse 8, but of the Son, he says, then there's a quotation. And then verse 10, and, and there's a quotation. In other words, both of these quotations are about the Son. So, we look at this and we say... The son is continuing to be addressed and it's in the context of him being superior to angels. And the quotation comes from the book of Psalms and it's Psalm 102. I wonder if we can go back there. Psalm 102. This is a passage, the entire uh, passage was quoted and read to us earlier in the service and that helps us to be reminded of something of the context. Psalm 102. And we need to ask the question, to whom is this psalm addressed? Who is being spoken to? To whom are these words addressed? And we don't need to read far. The first verse gives us the answer. Psalm 102 verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. You might have a Bible that uh, differentiates certain kinds of words and um, here we have the word law but lord but it's in capitals do you, do you have that in your bible capital l capital o capital r capital d and that is not to say these words are to be shouted or anything like that it's simply the translators alerting us to the fact that the word for god the word yahweh y-h-w-h in english with with no vowels is in view the word for God, the name for God. 
In fact, if you were to read the Legacy Standard Bible, it says, Oh, Yahweh, hear my prayer. Let my cry for help come to you. So the one being addressed is God himself. That's hugely significant. He's the one. Hear my prayer, Yahweh, the Lord. Let my cry come to you. So this is a psalm addressed to God, to Yahweh, clearly, the psalmist is in something of a depressed state. I, I love the fact that the Bible doesn't just give you the positive, encouraging, K-love message. It gives you everything that's in the realm of the emotions. You read the book of Psalms, every gamut of the emotions is in view. In the Bible, it's okay to be depressed, not to stay depressed, but to speak of your depression to God. God doesn't say, I'm going to not listen to this. Come back when you're in a better mood. No, you can spill your guts out literally to God. And that's what they do in the book of Psalms often. And that's not always where they end up, but most of the time they end up there and then contrast it when they look to God and see his deliverance. But sometimes you read through a psalm and there's no seeming deliverance. They stay in that depressed mood. Do you know there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations? which is not joy, 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 joy. It's sadness, 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 sadness. Tears, tears, tears. Sometimes we need to recognize the, the valley that we're in, not talking about the valley of the sun, the valley of life is a valley of tears. Heaven will not be a place of tears. And that's the contrast. But it's all right to be going through stuff and admit it. Some Christians, you get around them and you think, there's nothing real here. I know they're going through some stuff. And yet they won't alert you to that fact. Because they have this mistaken idea, you've got to be joyful always. No, you can rejoice always, but that doesn't mean you're getting it from your circumstance. You're getting joy from the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength, as Nehemiah puts it. So clearly uh, the psalmist here is in something of a depressed state. You read verse 6, he says, I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I'm in a lonely place. I'm not in a place of abundance. I'm in a wilderness. I'm in a waste place. That's how I'm feeling. Obviously poetic language is in view. Verse 8, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. I eat ashes uh, like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Verse 10, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. I, I read this and I'm encouraged. You know, you can be yourself before God. God actually would want us to be ourselves before him because he knows everything. It's not like you're fooling him if you say, Lord, I'm joyful. And you know you're not. Lord, I'm hurting. And that's okay. But from verse 12, we see a contrast. Look at this. But you, O Lord, again, Yahweh, L-O-R-D in capitals, is in view. You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is time to favor her. The appointed time, the set time has come. For your servants hold her stones, dear, and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. Again, Yahweh. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord, that's Yahweh, builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that the people yet 
to be created may praise the Lord. Again, Yahweh is in view. That he looked down. Who looked down? Yahweh. From his holy height, from heaven, the Lord, Yahweh, looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, you guessed it, Yahweh, and in Jerusalem, his praise. When people gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord, the Lord who? God himself, Yahweh. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You, you whose years endure through all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now this is where we get the quotation from the book of Hebrews. Of old you. Who's the you? Yahweh. You laid the foundation of the earth. How do we know that? The whole context. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Who's the you? Yahweh. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And so what is taking place in the book of Hebrews is the contrast between everything in the visible realm and God himself. Everything else will be rolled up. Everything else will be taken away, will not endure, but God himself will. It's interesting, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. God is eternal, and so is his word established in heaven forever. Clearly what's in view is an attribute of God known as immutability. What, when something is mutable, that means it's capable of change. To put the letters I am before it makes, means the negation of all that follows. So immutability is not only the fact that something doesn't change, but is incapable of change. That's who our God is. His, he is immutable. Not only does he not change, he's incapable of changing. I mean, think about it. If, if someone, this God, is perfect, to change would mean that which he was before the change wasn't perfect. And he's always perfect. And he's always been perfect. He's never grown. He's never matured. He's never had information added to him. He's known the end from the beginning. Not only that, he declares the end from the beginning. That's God. That's the God of the Bible who not only says what will happen, but makes sure it does happen. And that's why we have things like prophecy in the Bible. Now, when it's prophesied that Jesus would be born not in Iraq or some other place, but in Bethlehem, is God taking a chance? Because there's a lot of human free will that could mess things up. Yeah, I mean, a lot could happen. People have this thing called free will. And, and God says, well, it's my best hope that it's this Bethlehem where the Savior will be born because then I can prophesy it and talk about it hundreds of years in advance and uh, root with me, join with me, angels. Let, let's, let's pray this happens. No, it was declared because he declares the end from the beginning because he's the Lord. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of time and space and eternity. So clearly what's in view in Psalm 102 is the immutability of God. Malachi 3.6 says this, I am the Lord, I change not. Remember that. 
I do not change. God does not age. God is not learning. Some people have the idea that God is learning as we go and there was this thing called Noah's flood and now he realizes that was kind of an overreaction and he's learned from that and that's why he's not doing that anymore and because he's learned that he's putting a rainbow in the sky. Perish the thought. Our God doesn't change. He was right to do it then. He would be right to do it now. He's chosen not to flood the earth. Didn't say he wouldn't destroy it with fire but we're not going down with a flood. Why? Because of God's immutable promise. Praise the Lord. His immutable promise comes out of his immutable character. Praise the Lord. He's not subject to aging. He's not changing over time. Here's the point. Are you ready? Everything else is. Everything else in the created order is subject to change. When you're going on a flight, you're told that your departure time is 2.28 in the afternoon, but then you're told that is subject to change. Very rarely are they ever going right at 12.28, might be a couple of minutes later, but uh, could be a couple of hours later, many of you know it, right? You could be waiting a long time because it's not set in stone because it's subject to change. But everything about God is set. Forever. Am I making a point? I can't stand forever. It'll be a bad illustration. There it is. Now, as we read through this text, it talks of all creation and even the heavens being the work of God's hands, Yahweh. They will perish. That's heaven and earth. But you will remain. They will all wear out. This is Psalm 102, verse 26. Like a garment... You'll change them like a robe and they will pass away. That's everything in the created realm. Everything your senses has ever observed is subject to change. Verse 27. But you are the same and your years have no end. Children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Immutability is only true of the one true God. Everything else is changeable. And the point of the writer of Hebrews is that this passage, Psalm 102, is addressed to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not addressed to God the Father, but to Yahweh who will appear in building Zion. I can stumble over that statement. I can say it well. I could be somewhere in between. It's not about how well I present this. This is about the truth I'm presenting. Do you grasp what I just said? This is addressed to Jesus, according to Hebrews. This is God who created everything and will not change. And guess where we find that familiar text? Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. It's not the Gospel of Mark, it's not Isaiah, it's not Philippians, it's Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He's making the same exact point. We've got to get this. Jesus is God. 
He doesn't change. This is not talking about the actions of Jesus. This is talking about the character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. He's unchanging. I'm not sure that Jesus had the same exact breakfast every day. We're not told. And if he changed from one thing to the next, that's, that's not talking about the nature of Jesus. This is talking about his nature. In his nature, he's unchanging, he's immutable. He doesn't undergo change. So, are you getting the big picture? Hebrews, writer, is telling us Jesus is Yahweh. He's the one true God, immutable. Psalm 102 is about Yahweh. And in quoting Psalm 102 and applying it to Jesus, he's making a declaration. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. And this is just one of the many quotations that affirm the deity of Christ in this passage alone. He's already been declared to be the creator of all things earlier in this chapter, Hebrews 1. So this is no misspeak. Inciting Psalm 102 in this way, we're left in no doubt as to how the author of Hebrews viewed Jesus. Let me put it this way, ladies and gentlemen. When Jesus is identified as Yahweh, it spells the death knell to all cults. You know that word death knell, two words, death knell? It means the tolling of a bell to mark someone's death. It's all over. Come out of the cults. Jesus is God. This is not new. Isaiah 6, you remember Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw Yahweh on the throne, high and lifted up. And in John chapter 12, verse 41, John's commentary on that is, the one Isaiah saw, Yahweh on the throne, is Jesus. He saw his glory. Seeing the big picture, do you see now how everything fits together in Hebrews 1? There's nothing to go back to, and that's the message of Hebrews. It, it, it's, it's stunning. When the disciples of Christ in the first century were under heavy persecution, some faced martyrdom. It did not look like Jesus was on the throne, but he's on the throne, and that's the recognition Hebrews writer wants us to understand. He's on the throne, not the emperor, not the emperor, not the emperor. He might be saying, you've got to bow and say, Caesar is Lord, but we're not going to do it. Jesus is Lord. There's nothing to go back to. I hope you're sufficiently stirred by that. Because we've had a week's break between the last verses, but if you can get the context, it's one after another, after another, after another. Jesus is divine. Let all the angels of God worship him. And if he isn't God, God himself will be guilty of sin, ordering all angels to worship him. Jesus isn't an angel. He's superior to angels. All angels are to worship him. And if he isn't God, that's blasphemy and idolatry. And that's just the verses before. But in verses 10 and 11 and 12, we've seen some amazing things. And then the writer of Hebrews, if we go back to Hebrews 11, he isn't done, he isn't finished. He's got a seventh scripture to go to from the Old Testament, what the Jews would call the Tanakh, the Old Testament as we call it. Hebrews chapter 1, look with me, verse 13. 
And to which of the angels has he ever said? It's a rhetorical question, not unlike those that have gone before. When God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. He's making a statement by the question. And the question is not answered because it's obvious. God doesn't say this to any angel. No angels ever had this kind of God talk conversation. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Notice it's a question. To which of the angels has he ever said? Now the obvious answer is, he's never said that to any angel. Hmm. This verse is an amazing verse. It's quoted in all the synoptic gospels, as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Optic, which means to see, S-Y-N, sin, which means with. So it's a together with view. There's oftentimes an understanding that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seeing Jesus from the same point of view, and John comes along very, very different, and uh, although complementary to the others, has his own view from, uh, if you can picture in human language, uh, they're looking from the left side, seeing something about Christ. He's looking from the right side, no contradiction. He's just seeing some uh, amazing things about Jesus that others don't pick up on. But this verse is quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also by Peter in the Acts chapter 2 sermon, verses 34 and 35. In fact, this verse is the most quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Um, I think close behind it is uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith, repeated in the New Testament in Romans 1, 17, Galatians 3, 11, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. The just shall live by faith, but this is more than that. That's close, but this is the most quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And all would agree that Psalm 110 is a reference to the Messiah. Let's go back there because that's what we're reading. Psalm 110. A Psalm of David, verse 1. The Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, what's interesting to me, hopefully to you too, is that Jesus confronts the Pharisees with this exact uh, verse. Turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Normally, it's the other way around, right? They're asking him a question. He's asking them a question. And it wasn't because he didn't know the answer. He knew the answer. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Now, in this context, it would be better to understand he's talking about the Messiah. Christ is the English way of talking about the Messiah. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is uh, the equivalent in Greek of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. 
And when Jesus is asking, what do you think about the Christ? He's talking about and referencing the Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Hmm. He said to them, here's my question. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Now again, not wanting to dwell on this, but when David speaks, he's speaking of, uh, Christ is speaking of him, speaking in terms of the writing of Psalm 110. And Jesus' assessment was that he spoke and wrote in the Spirit. Again, that's Jesus' view of Scripture. It's Holy Spirit-inspired language. We should have uh, the right view of Jesus, and if we do have the right view of Jesus, we should have his view on the Scriptures. So he speaks in the Spirit. He said to them, how is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, where is he quoting? Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Question. And there's this second part to the question. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Notice, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord. Yahweh speaks to my Lord. And so Jesus is making the point, I know that the Messiah is the son of David, but how is it he's also the Lord of David? How can David call him Lord if the Messiah is a son of David? Normally when fathers have children, right, in the normal course of affairs, the father doesn't say to the son, Lord, boss, head, But Jesus, quoting Psalm 110, a verse they knew very, very well, he asked them a question about it and they can't answer. He's asking, look, David, he's, he's writing prophetically by the Spirit and it's a messianic psalm and we all agree it's talking about the Messiah to come, right? Yes, we all agree on that. How is it that David... Speaking of the Messiah, though he's the son of David, the Messiah is the son of David, how is he also the Lord of David? Do you get what he's saying? How is that so? David refers to him as my Lord. The title Messiah, son of David, that's, that's common in, as a messianic title. The Messiah is the son of David, and yet he's referring to him, David's referring to him as my Lord. How is that so? What kind of son is he that his father calls him Lord? Look at the reaction. Verse 45 goes on to verse 46. David calls him Lord. How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day. Did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? (laughs) I love that. Just with a question. He unraveled their false thinking. And they couldn't answer I love the fact that this psalm, Psalm 110 verse 1, is the most quoted verse. And I think in the context of the first century, rightly so. Christians were despised. Christians were uh, persecuted. And yet, all they could see in the natural realm was the government of Rome. Rome ruled in Israel. Rome ruled in the Middle East. With governmental power and authority, they ruled. Rome ruled. And the world couldn't see this whatsoever. 
All they could see were the swords of Rome, the chariots of Rome, the military might of Rome, the pomp and ceremony of Rome. And yet, for the Hebrew Christians, the writer speaks about the Messiah to come and says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till your enemies are made your footstool. In other words, it's beyond the realm of sight. As we talked about what Hebrews was all about, faith is a big factor and we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. And in Hebrews 11 we have the great chapter on faith. And the message is this, you can't see it with natural eyes right now, but Jesus is ruling. He's ruling now. He's on the throne now. But there's much more to be seen. Are you ready? As we continue reading back in Hebrews, read that verse, Hebrews chapter 1. Quoting Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How can I illustrate this? Well, if you're in a room, maybe a large room, and some king, maybe your king or your queen or your president, or if you're in a certain state in our, like ours in Arizona and the governor walks in, no matter what you might think of them politically, it's right to stand, to honor their office. In fact, not to do so could be considered an act of treason in history, not to stand when the king entered, when the president entered. Well, think about this. This one that's addressed here is in the immediate presence of God. It would be right to stand, and yet the Lord, Yahweh, says, sit. The Father says to the Son, Son, sit here. Sit here in the place of all authority in the universe. Sit at my right hand. Place of all authority. Jesus is able to say all authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. China belongs to Jesus Christ. France belongs to Jesus Christ. America belongs to Jesus Christ. That's why we're told, go into all the world, because there's nowhere in the world you won't go that he's not Lord. Sit at my right hand. You don't need to stand, son. No, sit, sit, sit and your enemies will be made a footstool for your feet. Actually, it's more than that. The Father says, I will make your enemies your footstool. I'll do it. You just sit here. You've done your work. I'll make your enemies your footstool. This goes back to the ancient world, centuries before the time of Christ, when a king was defeated he would be made to be in subjection to the conquering king and in a ceremony where all would see, usually in the capital. The defeated king would come onto the platform and the king, 
who's the victorious king, would be sitting in a chair and the defeated king would be made to bow before him and symbolically, although it happened literally, there was a symbol involved, literally what happened, the defeated king would fall on his face before the, uh, the victorious king and the conquering king would put his feet on the neck of the defeated king, showing to everybody, this one is a defeated foe forever. There's no rebellion, there's no quelling, there's no uprising ever going to take place. This one is under my rule. If, I, if he lives, it's because I say he lives. Sometimes what happened would be his head would be chopped off and that would be part of the ceremony. But sometimes he let the one live. But everyone knew this defeated king is defeated forever. That's what everybody would know when this was spoken in the book of Psalms. And it's what would be known in the book of Hebrews when it's addressed here. The father says, actually, son, you sit here. I'll make your enemies your footstool. Put your feet on the neck of the defeated enemy. Who did Jesus conquer? He conquered Satan. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the curse. He conquered all rebellion. He conquered, he conquered, he conquered. There's going to be no rebellion left. Jesus is victorious. In Latin, Christus Victor. goes back to Genesis 3.15. The serpent would strike the heel of the seed to come, but the seed to come would crush his head. Christ, victorious. The first promise of redemption in the entire scriptures, Genesis 3.15, fulfilled in a scripture like Psalm 110, verse 1. Son, sit here in the place of all authority until I subdue all your enemies. Why is this the most frequently quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New? Because the Christians needed to know Jesus really is Lord. I don't think it's a stretch to say we in the 21st century need to hear that too. When the country is where it is, and when the people are where they are, Jesus is Lord. Lord of heaven and earth. Nothing's changed. Everything else can change. Even the passage before us tells us everything you can see will change. You ever run into someone from high school, if you're a little bit older, and it's been 10, 20, 30 years, and you think, whoa, things have changed, and they say... uh, you know what? It's not just me. That th- it's not just me. You've changed too. If you have a 25-year-old wife and they're beautiful, my advice, I mean this sincerely, take pictures. <laughs> they're not going to be looking the same at age 95. You'll agree, right? There's, there's changes that take place. God doesn't change. And when we see him, we see all perfection. When we, when we study his attributes, we're studying God's revelation of himself. One day we'll see it with our eyes. But here we're being told by him, this is who I am and I'm unchanging. Let, me understand, let us understand this. If you understand grace towards you, his affection towards you, it's on you from eternity. He hasn't grown to like you. He set his love on you in eternity past. With an everlasting love, I've loved you. 
And that's great assurance to us when we think, with what's going on in my life, does God still love me? Or, or what I've done in my life, does God still love me? You might have left your first love, but your first love has never left you. The love of God is eternal because God is eternal. Everything about God is eternal. Everything about God is perfect. He does not exist based on the things that happen here and we can change Him in some way. No, this unchanging God in the Gospel has made a way for those who are sinners and rebellious and subject to change to be in an eternal state with Him forever of right standing. How is that? You know the verse, God loved the world in this way. He so loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. How is that? God sent His Son into the world born of a virgin, living a sinless life, and then on the cross, bearing the guilt and the rebellion of us all, as the Scripture says. Our sins laid on Him. He's punished in our place. And three days later, after dying, He rose again from the dead and is now at the place of all authority in the universe. So Christians, be stirred up. Christians, be cheered up. There's nothing to go back to. The world, the flesh, the devil, they've got nothing for you. Everything's future in terms of the fulfillment that awaits. Christ is victorious. And he sits in the place of all authority. Now. I, I read this and in the context of the previous verse, all I can do is worship. It's just the right response. That's what... The Paul does in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy and all that has been written in chapters 1 through 11, as we encounter the book of Romans, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your logical logismos, your logical worship. It's logical to just bow before this Lord Jesus and say, you're my God, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Why? This one made heaven and earth and everything is coming to him. He's the heir of all things by whom also he made the world. This one is worshipped by angels and one day everyone, everyone will surrender to Jesus Christ and acknowledge his lordship. For some, it won't be for salvation. The time of salvation has passed. This is the day of grace. This is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Then it will be, they're made to. Don't let that be you. Acknowledge his lordship now. Come under his rule now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And acknowledge this one is both Lord and Christ. And God has exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Think of that as a footstool. Death will have no one in its clutches. All will rise, some to face judgment, some to face the smile of God forever. Where will you be? 
I trust even as a Christian you're under his rule. Whatever he says to you, do it. Come under his scepter, scepter of his word, whatever he tells you. And recognize Jesus is reigning now and there will come a day when all enemies will be put under his feet. Reign here, son. That's your place. You don't need to get up. Sit. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you for the kingship of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd use this message to deliver many from the cults. You're big enough to do that, more than big enough to do that. But Lord, for the Christian, would you establish your rule in our hearts that we would forever say, Lord, be Lord. Why would you shed your grace on me to see these things when many just see the might and pomp of the world, the might and pomp of Rome as it was, or the attractions of Hollywood in our day, of riches, and yet you say, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Everything of this earth is passing away, but the man who does the will of God will live forever. Help us set our hearts on eternal things, on heavenly things. Set our minds on heavenly things and be the most practical help in earthly things in this world. The most heavenly-minded person on planet Earth was the Lord Jesus, and he did the most good. So, Lord, help us to do good, recognizing the greatness of our supreme head, the Lord Jesus, who has conquered all our adversaries. May we live under his rule now and forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.